for a new episode of Kings of the Podcast. Introducing your host, the Mayor, John Hovan, and DP, Dennis Bernstein. Buckle up, here we go! Welcome back. Let's get this started. Another episode of Kings of the Podcast coming to you. Well, I won't say from beautiful Southern California today, DB. It is it is still gorgeous compared to the rest of the country and all of North America, but a little bit foggy this morning as we uh, bring you episode 12 of season two. We're coming to you this morning from the Peter Praisler Studios, Dennis. No, son. I'll pass on that one, John. I have no clue. All right. So here's the thing. He was a fifth round pick back in 1985. And I know you love the the, the dot connecting. So here's the connection coming up on today's program. We have agent to the stars, one of the most influential agents in all of hockey, one of the most outspoken, a fabulous follow on Twitter, a huge Bruce Springsteen fan as well, which we'll have to ask him about. But of course, I'm talking about Alan Walsh. Now, the connection here is this Walsh, in my opinion, is sort of known for for two things. Um, from a client standpoint, that is. He's, he's probably known for a lot of things, but he seems to be the goalie whisperer. He has a lot of goaltender clients, including Marc-Andre Fleury and a number of others, including several in the LA Kings system. Uh, and there is a connection to my second point as well, which is he seems to pluck these gems out of the Czech Republic. Uh, and for example, Lucas Perique, who was drafted by the LA Kings, he's the number one rated goaltender in the LA Kings prospect pipeline. He is not only from the Czech Republic, but he's also a goaltender. So he checks both boxes for Alan Walsh. So uh, anyway, I decided, well, hey, with, with him coming on today, let's go into the uh, history books and see how many players have the LA Kings actually drafted out of the Czech Republic. And so there are officially 10 players. And some of them, I would say, are more well-known than Peter Prezler. Um, I'm talking about not only guys like Lucas Perique, uh, who would have the recency bias there, but also names from the past, like Robert Long, Jan Nemechek, Pavel Rosa, Tomas Ziska. Some of those players didn't even play very many games, but they are memorable to longtime Kings fans. But Peter Prezler stands out to me, Dennis, because Although he was drafted in 85, uh, a couple years later when he's playing for the LA Kings, he only played 46 NHL games spread over a couple of years. But they were pretty memorable because they came at the height, the absolute height of the Kings-Oilers hatred. And so I encourage people in their free time this week to go check out YouTube, search Peter Praisler. Maybe I'll even tweet some out. You'll find some YouTube videos um, of Praisler mixing it up with guys like Kelly Bookberger, and then there's this terrible, not terrible, but uh, I guess it is. It's a terrible elbowing incident where right in front of the net, it is plain as day, brutally illegal, <laughs> mean-spirited elbow that Messier uh, gives to Praisler, knocks him out, Praisler's on the ground. Bob Miller and Nick Nixon are talking as if he's been you know, shot from a sniper at the top of the forum. And um, then a brawl ensues, and you can see Marty McSorley uh, throwing haymakers with Mark Messier, which to me is just speaks to the, the the hatred at the time. Like McSorley was a former oiler. These guys, they were in the trenches together. And then, but it seems like the minute that Marty came to LA from day one, he, he, he just instantly drained all of his oiler blood and he uh, became an LA King. And so 
people that remember Marty McSorley very fondly during that time period and remember the Kings Oilers hatred from those Smythe division days, uh, probably remember the name Peter Praisler, even though he only played, like I said, uh, less than 50 games in the National Hockey League. All right. So, Dennis, uh, as we uh, transition here, uh, we're going to we're going to try to keep the first period relatively short today because want to spend as much time as possible with Walsh. But uh, we, we want to get some goals for and some goals against in. But I would be remiss, Dennis, if I didn't at least ask you, how did your prop bet do on Sunday over the weekend? Well, John, nobody likes kissing their sister, but it was a push, John. So the, the prop bet, who would have, which would be more? Kings goals on Sunday or Tom Brady's touchdown passes? Three Kings goals, three Tom Brady passes, uh, touchdown passes. So you get your money back. It's the worst possible outcome, right? Well, that's not true. I guess the worst possible outcome when you're placing a bet is losing. But uh, I, when you're trying to have some fun, at least, that is the worst possible outcome. You want, a, you want an outcome. You want a decision, right? That's yes. what you want. You want something to discuss and debate. So we have nothing. So thank you for, you know, uh, Andy Tong on Mayor's Manor yes, has been writing yes. this article with the Tong's ticket. And he, he's, he's, he's doing pretty well. He's doing, so he's doing great, John. Great addition to Mayor's Manor, for sure. Or or re-edition, re, re actually, because Andy yes. didn't do a long time. Well, yes. And, and, you know, it's funny. Andy went off and got married and had a baby and moved to Colorado, and uh, he's back in the fold. We like that. So he's doing pretty well. We're going to have to uh, maybe, you know, start laying a couple dollars here and there on some of Andy's prop bets. But uh, keep those prop bets coming, Dennis. Those are those those are fun. I'm not sure no, that they'll all... We need an Andy Tong segment, a, a gambling corner <laughs> oh, segment God. on the podcast. No? He's been uh, texting me weekly for five years, trying to get on the podcast. <laughs> so don't don't give him any ideas. Although okay. we did have Andy on the old Mayor's Manor yeah, podcast. Right, right. Um, I think we had Andy on, and I think we had Mark Yannetti on, which was mm -hmm. a Calder Cup final preview uh, back when when Manchester went to the Calder Cup there uh, under Coach Mike Stuthers and Adrian Kempe flew over. We talked about that recently on a, on a podcast. He flew over and joined the joined them late in the season and and just lit things up there and uh, they won the Calder cup their final year. Well, I mean, that's, somebody needs to make a movie out of that. Dennis, the team announces earlier. It's like, a, it's like, it's like the movie slap shot that Manchester Monarchs announced that they're, they're leaving the AHL and, and the Kings are moving their, their top minor league franchise, you know, 3000 miles across the country to Ontario. And it's their final season in Manchester. And the team had a history a very disappointing playoff losses back when coach Mark Morris was there and, you know, Dustin Brown had played there. A lot of kids had played there coming up through the years. And, and no matter, I mean, they would have like 150 points in the regular season and they would just, you know, they were the top team. They were the toast of the town. And then they would, they would lose in the playoffs their final year in Manchester. What a way to go out. They win the Calder cup. I mean, if, if you were a fan, you really couldn't have asked for a better ending. That's the last game you saw as their championship. So yeah, you have yeah. to be any better. It, it can't. It's just beautiful. Like I said, someone needs to make a, a movie. movie. Out of that. You're right. There you go. Let us win the lottery, and then you and I will do a documentary. Exactly. It'll be our first film. It'll be, be you executive producers. Exactly. I have DB Stables, though. Yeah. Yeah. I got another one over the weekend. But yeah, all I want is executive producing. You know me. When we did the, when we did the the uh, promote promo poster for for Kings of the Podcast, what I have to bottom me and you executive yeah. producers. That's all I care about. Executive <laughs> producer. Great. So we'll come up with KOTP Films. That'll be our first documentary that we will do. And uh, Mike Stuthers isn't busy. We'll call him up. We'll get a long interview out of him. Exactly. And we'll, you know, we can find uh, Jordan Wheel and Brandon Cozen and uh, 
uh, there was a whole bunch of guys that were there back then. Um, so anyway, Adrian Kempe, he can come back on and he can talk about it again. So anyway, uh, that's your prop bet. Let's do some goals for and goals against. Let's move into the uh, the second period. Get Alan Walsh here. He's holding on the other line, uh, rocking out to Springsteen right now. Uh, goals for DB. Give me a, give me a goals for from this two game set uh, when the LA Kings were in Vegas. Kings actually started a game fast, John. I know that's one of the one of your 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 goals against, but 36 seconds into Sunday's game, Kopitar scores. So that's that's one goal for for me is that a, a actual fast start for the Kings coming out of the box. Yes, and uh, according to LA Kings PR, that was only the fourth quickest goal that he has scored in his career. So if you think about that, he, there have been other goals that came even quicker, mm -hmm. which is which is pretty amazing. Uh, my first goal for. Uh, is going to be, hey, man, they're spreading it out. This is 11 different games the Kings have played, and 11 different players have scored the first goal of the game. That's pretty amazing because when you think about the lack of goal scoring over the last couple of years, and at times this being really a one-line team, which was the Kopitar line, to go 11 games into the season and have 11 different goal scores for the LA Kings, I'm not sure how long they can keep this up, but uh, it, it's been pretty fun to see. Well, they keep... Shuffling people in and out of the lineup, John, it might go on for a while. <laughs> that could, that's very, very true. the same 12 in a lineup, maybe it happens, but. Yes. Do you have another goals for? I do. Um, and this is not just, he had a nice game yesterday, but it's overall, Kale Clegg's averaging almost 19 minutes a game. Um, his uh, his advanced stats are, are decent, are, are better. The team is not good five on five, but his relative, um, relative coursing Fenwick for, um, the team is is doing well. So he's he's acquitted himself nicely, John. I think that that's one of the things that coming into the season, you absolutely talked about it, saying this has got to be this. It's a pivotal season for Kale. He's done great. Mm -hmm. I think so far and you know, the team hasn't done great, but I think he's acquitted himself very well in the early going. And, and at the very least, he has not found himself in the crosshairs of King's Twitter like several other players on defense. So I don't know if there's an advanced stat on that, but somebody needs to track it. Kale Clegg is doing very well. Um, I debated back and forth, DB. I was going to go with Velarde faceoffs because he finished so strong in game two. It was his mm -hmm. second best faceoff percentage. It was like 77 or 78 percent, uh, which was great. However, I did decide to go with because it was such a big pivotal moment for him. Um, I decided to give my second goal for to Austin Strand. This is a kid who went undrafted and he took the long road um, like a, like a Sean Walker or even like a Matt Roy, although Roy was drafted. They really took the long road. Uh, Austin Strand was in the ECHL at one point. Um, he had signed with the LA Kings as a free agent coming out of the WHL and, uh, you know, he, he, he put the time in, he put the work in and he spent time with the Kings development staff. And that's one thing that we've seen repeatedly over the last couple of years is that when these guys uh, that aren't the, the, the big fancy shiny toys, you know, high end yep. prospects, they put the time in that they can often many, many, many times, very often they can uh, get rewarded at the end. So I, I don't know if Austin strand will eventually become a full-time NHL player and where that lands, you know, for the LA Kings. But I will say this, like we were talking about with Daniel Brickley recently, Austin strand does bring something that they don't really have across the board. Uh, and that is he brings some size and he was an offensive juggernaut when he was in the WHL. And I know that it's harder when you get to the A and when you get to the NHL, but if he can use his size and if he can use his shot and help create some offense from the right side, which is what they need right now with Walker and Roy out of the lineup. You could be seeing Austin Strand play some more NHL games here. Oh yeah, absolutely. And they, John, they need the help right now. So any unexpected help on the blue line is more than welcome to this team right now. All right. Give me a goal against. Um, Paul Grunstrom can't take 
a delay of penalty, a delay of game over the glass penalty with 0.2 yeah. seconds left in the, in the period. It, it's just awareness. And Todd has talked about this, like game awareness, you know, situational awareness. That was tough. It led to the power play goal that lost them the game, the game winning goal. So to me, um, you got to be a little bit more aware. Just hold on to the puck. Know that there's a couple of seconds left in the period. Ice it if you need to, not throw it over the glass. So to me, that you just got to know better uh, with respect to a play like that. Yeah, and it's a bummer on the goal against because um, you want to try to find some positives. And Jeff Carter was on mayorsmanor.com this morning um, talking about how Carl Grundstrom has really become a good player for them. And, and he applauded him as one of the younger players and pointed him out as one of the younger players who has improved. So it's it's a bummer, but it's it's it, it happens with, with these young players. They do make mistakes. Yeah. Um, I, my, my first goal against is going to be on fans banging on Michael Amadio. And here, here's my point here, guys. I don't think that Amadio I, – I think you really need to hear it. I don't think that Amadio is long for the team, okay? I think that when you, when you start to project out – uh, you know, a year, two years from now, whatever you want to call it, six to 24 months from now, there's a lot of depth coming up behind him. Everybody knows the names, Turcotte, Byfield, Kapari, Thomas, et cetera. Um, so I don't think that there's, you know, ultimately a spot for him. However, people keep asking, why is he on the second line? Well, well, people, you need to pay a little bit more attention. Why is he on the second line? The Kings really don't have a lot of options right now. I mean, uh, you, you know, they, they are pretty much gutted when you take out double A, when you take out Blake Lazat. Those are guys that have NHL experience that can play center. And NHL experience does still mean something. So even though you don't like the player and you're ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater and you're ready to put a byfield in there, or you're ready to put a Turcotte in there, or you're ready to put these young kids in there that are 18, 19, 20 years old. They don't have professional experience. They're not ready. They're certainly not ready for second line center roles on a team that's trying to win games. So NHL experience does matter. And Michael Amadio does bring that. So it, it's not like Todd McClellan has a drawer full of <laughs> NHL experienced centers that he could put there on the second line. Uh, so I just think that uh, it, it gets a little bit nauseating at times to hear people, you know, uh, continually come after him. You're not putting Jared Anderson Dolan on the second line uh, with his limited NHL experience. I would never suggest playing Turcotte or Byfield ever. On the second line. <laughs> oh, I hope not. But, no, no, actually, okay. I, actually, I, I would, but that, that's another story. Really? So, DB, you want to put Byfield on the second line center right now with without playing no, any no, pro not game? Right now. No, no, you know I've said not right now. Yeah, okay, that's what Before I'm talking about, right now. Yeah. Burn, yeah. baby, burn. You know what I can say about that ELC? Burn, baby, burn. Okay, fine. Burn, baby, burn. What's your, what's your second goal against? This team is pretty bad five on five. If you look at all the advanced statistics, yeah. they are they are probably the poorest team in the league right now, five on five. And is it part of because some of the players are missing that you mentioned? Of course. Is it some kids are just learning their way right now? Absolutely. But it, it's really it, it, the goal is to win games and get back in the race. They have to improve five on five. And you look at it, it is a one line team, John. With respect to you know you get balanced, but when you look at the play and you know the the shot generation, it, it's Kopitar. I follow him Brown and not mm -hmm. much more. So I think that's where the real improvement needs to come. So when, when you look at it, it's not a pretty sight, but hopefully as these kids get more acclimated to NHL play and there's more chemistry involved, the, the and certainly Walker and Roy will lead to that as well. Their return as well. Um, it will improve. But right now it's, 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 it's really challenging for them to uh, drive play. Five last five. Minute of play in the you period. better have your defense in order. And that means your defensemen as well as your, your defensive capabilities from your forwards. When four of your first 11 games are against Colorado and Vegas, two of the quicker, faster teams in the league, you better have things in order. Uh, my final goal against here, before we bring in Alan Walsh, 
I, I'm sorry, but I have to give out a goal against to the hockey gods for, for they're just, they're coming for Martin Furk. Like the guy can't catch a break, you know, yeah. he, uh, he's, he's, he's scraping to, uh, you know, crawling, scraping to get his way into the NHL. He gets a, a deal at the end of last year after a small taste with the Kings. He's coming into this year with high expectations. He's going to be paired with Gabe Velarde, who he has some real chemistry with. And then he has an injury in uh, training camp. And then he finds a way to get back into the lineup. And then he, you know, has an injury. It looks like it's going to keep him out for another couple of weeks. So yeah, um, bummer. Weeks. Yep. Yeah, bummer that the hockey gods are coming um, for Martin Furk. DB, we have some Springsteen lined up, uh, which is a favorite, of course, of Alan Walsh. And then on the other side, we'll bring in Walshy and we'll talk all things NHL hockey after the break. Welcome back, second period. And, you know, our guest this time around, DB, it's been a long time coming. We, we've had a few starts and stops. He's almost joined the show before, but he's here now. Alan Walsh. Alan, welcome to the program. Thanks, guys. Great to be with you. Now, look, we normally, when we have players on, we do sort of a this is your life, and we go, you know, way back to their younger years and bring them all the way forward and that sort of thing. But we have some really hot topics that we'd like to get to uh, with you that are, I think are more sort of current, but you know, people know you from Twitter. You're the agent to the stars. You have some of the biggest names in the National Hockey League. And somehow every year you also seem to snag some of the the up and comers that are uh, taken at the at the NHL draft as well. But give sort of the listeners the, the dime store version of it. You were a prosecutor once upon a time and then you became or have become, uh, you know, an NHL powerhouse agent. Just sort of give everybody the the quickie version of your backstory. I was born and raised in Montreal, and I started playing uh, goal when I was uh, five years old. Uh, I grew up hockey-obsessed. If I wasn't playing hockey with my team, I was playing it in the street in front of my house. If I wasn't playing it on the street, I was watching it on TV. And if I wasn't watching it on TV, I was reading about it. I was a uh, voracious reader as an 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old. And my dad would go on business trips and come home every trip with a new hockey book. So I was reading about uh, Terry Sawchuk and Bill Durham and uh, Gump Worsley, who was uh, still in the league with the Minnesota North Stars um, when I was around seven, eight years of age. Jacques Plante and the advent of the goalie mask. Uh, I was reading about the uh, history of business. Uh, in the NHL, the formation of the NHL, uh, the Montreal Maroons, Howie Moran, Aurel Joliet. And uh, that's the way that I grew up. And I used to sit and talk to my dad, who uh, was also born and raised in Montreal, about going to games with the Montreal, going to, to see games, uh, Montreal Canadiens in the Montreal Forum in the uh, 1930s and 1940s. And I was enthralled by it all. 
So fast forward a bit, uh, uh, playing minor hockey uh, in Montreal. Uh, I was a very good goalie in my community. But as I progressed uh, further and further down the road, uh, it became very clear that I didn't have, uh, I just wasn't good enough to go any further than uh, the college level. Uh, I played uh, for uh, two years at McGill University, uh, where I uh, graduated from, uh, played for a time with Mike Babcock uh, when he was, we were there at the same time. And I got to know Mike uh, back then in the uh, uh, early to mid 80s and uh, ended up uh, uh, through a series of circumstances coming out to L.A. to go to law school. I had uh, never been to L.A. before. I had no friends or family in L.A., uh, but somehow I was enthralled with the idea of living in L.A., packed up an old Camaro uh, with no air conditioning. With my younger brother, uh, I had uh, basically two suitcases full of clothes, a, uh, a stereo, and all my Springsteen bootlegs. And uh, got in the car and drove cross-country, took us 10 days, rolled into L.A., uh, found a place to live, and and law school a few days later. I had gone to law school with the idea of working in hockey in some way, but I wanted a law degree. And I really had no interest starting law school in the traditional practice of law, going to work in a law firm. It never was on my radar. It was all about finding, getting my law degree and finding a way to work somehow in the hockey industry. And uh, in my last year of law school, I started working uh, an internship with the LADA's office. And the one thing that's unique about uh, a law in California is that if you've completed two years of law school, law school's three years, you can appear in court as long as you have a licensed attorney sitting next to you. So my entire third year of law school, I was doing preliminary hearings in the downtown criminal courts building with a, I I would come in early, I would prep 15, 20 cases for preliminary hearings. Uh, the attorney I was assigned to had been in the office for 30 years and had no interest in doing any work. And we would go down to court together, uh, you know, me bright eyed carrying uh, an armful of files and this guy carrying an LA Times. And uh, we'd go into court, he'd spread out the LA Times and said, go have at it. If you have any questions, you know, ask me, but don't ask me. And I would uh, meet the cops there in court who were subpoenaed on the cases, uh, meet the uh, witnesses, get everything all prepped and put on these little mini trials in, in, in court my entire third year of law school. And I was enthralled with it. I loved being in court. I was someone who was uh, very outraged uh, by, by crime. Uh, I identified very much with the victims of crime. And um, I had decided that all I wanted to do was to become a, a prosecutor. And uh, I, was, I was fortunate to get hired by the LA County DA's office. I started working uh, as a prosecutor. And within one year, 
the unit that I had set my sights on was was a division called the Hardcore Gang Division of the LADA's office, which did nothing but gang murder cases. And uh, within one year of being in the office, uh, there was an opening. I applied and was uh, accepted into the unit. I was probably at the time one of the youngest prosecutors ever in the history of the state of California to try a murder case. I was about 20, 26 years old at the time. And wow. between 26 and 30 years of age, um, prosecuted two verdicts, uh, approximately 40 murder cases. So there I was, 30 years of age. I had just literally been in trial continuously for four years. Um, there was uh, such a understaffed, understaffing issue at the DA's office and budget issues at the DA's office that I was being handed off murder cases two or three days before they were set to start jury selection. I would do closing arguments on a case. The jury would be deliberating, and I'd be picking a new jury on a new murder case in the courtroom next door before even getting a verdict on the other case I had just finished. That's what it was like. And then hockey came. And, and, and then what happened <laughs> is here I am, 30 years of age. I had tried 40 cases, 40 murder cases, and I was at a crossroads. I, I really felt like it was time to leave, and I really felt like it was time to reinvent myself. And uh, I wanted to get back onto the track that I originally set for myself when I went to law school, which was go work in hockey in some way. And through a, uh, just continuing to read and, and seeing where my own interests lie, I thought, you know what? I really think being an agent and representing players would be, would be something I'd want to do and I'd be passionate about. And through a series of meetings back in Montreal, what happened was I had so much overtime built up in the DA's office. They basically told me when you try a murder case and you get a verdict, you've got to take two or three weeks off to bring your overtime down or you're going to end up losing. it. So I was, my entire last year in the DA's office, I would try a case and then take two weeks off. I'd get on a plane, fly to Montreal and hang out with my dad, who I've been incredibly close with my entire life. And it was sitting and having dinner with my dad in Montreal where he started asking me about my future and what I was thinking where I first broached the subject with him that maybe I'd like to represent players. And, uh, he had a lifelong friend who was a journalist in Montreal. And I met this journalist at my dad's behest. And he had a great, you know, one, two hour meeting. And he ended up suggesting I call a gentleman by the name of David Chadia. David Chadia, for, for those of you that don't know, was one of the original agents in all of pro sports. Uh, he had started representing his first NHL client in 1969, 1970, 
in the 70s, he represented guys like uh, Denny Potsdam, who went uh, number one overall, Brian Trottier, Billy Smith. He represented Larry Robinson. Uh, at one point in time, he represented five players in consecutive years who went number one overall in the NHL draft. Uh, one year, he represented the top 10 picks in the first round, one to 10. And uh, he was a powerhouse. He didn't just represent hockey players. He represented uh, players, uh, Major League Baseball. He represented Reggie Jackson for a while. Uh, he represented Warren Cromartie of the Expos. Uh, Carl Morton, he represented uh, players in the NFL. He represented a ton of players in the CFL. Um, it, David was a very charismatic, mercurial personality kind of guy. Um, he was very, he still is very much larger than life. And uh, I cold called him. I, I, I looked for his name in the phone book, the Montreal <laughs> phone book. And I found the name David Shadia. Uh, this journalist recommended I give him a call and say that I've been sent to him. I leave a message on his voicemail. Oh, hi, Mr. Shadia. My name's Alan Walsh. I'm a, uh, originally from Montreal. I'm a uh, district attorney in uh, L.A. I'm interested in getting into the player agent business, and this person has referred me to you. And uh, I, I understand uh, you were a very big agent back in the day, and I'd, I'd like to meet with you. Uh, David had gotten completely out of the business of representing athletes in 1981, and this is 1995. So um, the next day I get a, a call back. This is David Shadia. How can I help you? And I go through my little spiel again, and he said, okay, uh, be in my office tomorrow. Uh, 1 p.m., uh, you've got 20 minutes, click. And I go down to his office, and I get let in at 1 p.m., and it was the biggest office I'd ever seen in my life. You could land a 747 in his office. <laughs> and he had a desk that looked like the resolute desk in the Oval Office, and there was a chair in the office that looked like a throne, that was, I came to find out much later, a, a, a original Louis XIV throne that was uh, bought in uh, auction somewhere. And uh, so, so David's sitting on the throne behind the resolute desk and in walks me wearing uh, jeans and sit down and we start talking. And, and I tell him that I'm interested in representing uh, players and I'd like to have some advice on how to get started. David starts telling me some stories about him with different players back in the day. And, uh, and we start talking and talking and talking. And the next thing you know, four horses come by and we're still talking. And David then said, um, you know, kid, uh, I, I love my time in the sports business. You know, all the memories are coming flooding back right now. Uh, one of my biggest regrets is uh, getting out of the business. Uh, I'd love to get back in. I've, I've thought about it. I just haven't had the right opportunity. Maybe this is uh, kind of meant to be here. Uh, maybe you and I could do something together. And by the end of that first meeting, we had shaken hands on a 50-50 uh, partnership and, and started a company called Can-Am Sports Management uh, with z zero employees, 
zero players, zero clients, and started literally from scratch uh, in uh, in September 1995. A heck of a story. We're, we're, we still have a lot of hockey to get to, uh, but Alan, before we do, I, I would be remiss if I didn't get to Springsteen because I'm afraid that we're going to get to all the hockey stuff and then we're going to forget about it, and I don't want to do that. So I was texting with you the other day asking for your favorite song. I know you're a big fan. You've talked about it uh, you know, on Twitter, and, and, and everybody knows. You just mentioned your bootlegs as well. Um, so I have Thunder Road lined up today, but our worlds also have crossed in, in another area as well. And it relates to Springsteen. So not only do our hockey worlds cross over, um, but also in music. So you've been to over a hundred, uh, Springsteen shows. I've been to over a hundred social distortion shows. Springsteen's your favorite. Social D is my favorite. When Mike Ness, the lead singer of Social D put out a solo album many years ago, God, it's probably been over 10 years ago now. Um, Bruce came and sang on a song there. They did Misery Loves Company, and we're gonna we're gonna play that today as well. Um, I, just why Bruce? What, what what? How did you get connected with Bruce? And you've had all these wonderful experiences. And why over a hundred shows? People always ask me when they hear that I went to over a hundred social D shows. So why have you been to so many Bruce Springsteen shows? I think I'm probably now up to uh, somewhere over 140 shows, <laughs> taking into account uh, the solo. Solo tours, solo shows, single performances that I've seen um, over the years. Why Bruce? Um, uh, it was around uh, 1975. I was 10 years old, and uh, and I heard "Born to Run" on the radio, and I was just blown away. And I and I. Uh, Ended up with a couple of buddies of mine at 10 and 11 years old. We would go to uh, downtown Montreal. There was a record store called, remember those uh, record stores? I do. Called, they were great. Called, <laughs> called Phantasmagoria. And it was a massive, you know, store filled with vinyl. And I went and I bought the Born to Run album for $4.99. And uh, I came home and I started off at the beginning, Thunder Road, and the album just blew me away, one song after the other. And uh, there's no internet, there's nothing to research. The next time I was at the uh, record store, I, I discovered that, that Bruce Springsteen had two previous albums that he had released at the time. Greetings from Asbury Park and The Wild, The Innocent, the East Street Shuffle, bought both of them, brought them home. And uh, that was the beginning of me becoming a lifelong uh, Springsteen fan. The first show I saw was uh, Bruce and the East Street Band at the Montreal Forum, 1978, on the Darkness on the Edge of Town tour. The show blew me away. I had never seen anything like that before um and uh, that was my first show my second show i didn't see him again live until 1981 january 81 on the river tour uh which was the next album he had released and the next tour he did that that show was amazing and when i finally got old enough to be able to travel and go see shows um, i ended up seeing uh bruce all over the world uh, I saw him in London, saw him in Germany, saw him in uh, Barcelona, 
some of the Barcelona shows are, are legendary. And uh, through, uh, again, a series of events, I became friends with um, Max Weinberg's manager, a gentleman by the name of Mark Stein. And, and through that, I had an opportunity to get to know Max and spend time with him in various settings. Um, the last time he played L.A., he played in uh, San Juan uh, Capistrano at the Coach House. Uh, Max invited me on stage to uh, the Bang of Tambourine on Satisfaction with his band and do uh, background vocals with the mic uh, turned off, uh, <laughs> Glory Days, which was a very good thing. Max actually asked me uh, just before the song started, he whispered to me, can you sing? And I said, no. He goes, okay, we'll turn the mic off. <laughs> which was a great choice <laughs> that's fantastic and, uh, yeah and 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 of course over the years going to so many shows and interacting with people connected to the band uh i've had a chance to meet bruce on a number of occasions uh had one one occasion where i got to sit next to him uh watching uh, uh a show it was a, a charity benefit show in LA at the Shrine Auditorium, Bruce and I sat next to each other for over an hour talking about the different people performing, about uh, his career, uh, some of the things that I remembered. I showed him some pictures from shows I had on my phone and different things, and 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 it was a it was a great great conversation. Something I'll always remember. Well, I want to let Dennis jump in here and ask some some hockey related questions, but just a quick follow up comment to that to let you know. Growing up, I've been a huge music guy my whole life. I go to hundreds and hundreds of concerts, and and just it's 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 as important in my life as sports, live music that is. So this last year, of course, has been a real bummer. But my my connection to Springsteen is this: I was never really a Springsteen guy growing up. It just it wasn't something that that appealed to me very much, but it, I, I think now looking back on it, it was something that I was never exposed to. And so here was the turning point. The very first ever event at Staples Center in Los Angeles uh, was Bruce Springsteen. So of course, Staples Center's opening, I have to go. So I, I, I pay through the nose, I get these great seats, I go to the show uh, because I want to be there for the first event at Staples Center. And I wanted to see Bruce and you know see what all the hype was about. Obviously he's already, already was a legend at that point. And uh, I go to the show. I'm absolutely blown away. He plays for over three hours. I was blown away to the point that I went the next night and scalped tickets because I just couldn't wait to go to another Bruce show. So my experience was going to back-to-back Bruce shows, and uh, I've been to a number of them since and, and really enjoy Springsteen. Not nearly as much as you do, uh, but uh, he, he certainly impressed me on, on his debut performance, although he did not appreciate Staples Center and actually had a few pointed things to say about it, but that's probably a different podcast. Uh, Dennis, you want to jump back in on the hockey yeah. side? Yeah, just but let's be real here. I'm the only one that grew up in New Jersey, so I have a, a deeper connection. Here we go. Did you go to Asbury Park? Did you go Did you go to uh, the Stone Pony and all I've that stuff? I've been to the Stone Pony. Not to see him play, but I've been, uh, and not as many concerts, but in the day, like the 70s, the 80s, that what Alan talks about you know, darkness of the edge of town, the river that that hiatus because of this legal. I was at all those shows at the garden. Just amazing. I couldn't get, agree with you guys. I, I was I'm a contemporary of Alan. So at that time, it was just to go into the arenas and see three hour shows were amazing. So uh, but a little over to um, the hockey here for hopefully for the balance of the interview. Alan, um, Alan and I are, are connected through uh, PSN 690 in Montreal. He's on with Mitch uh, Melnick. I'm on with Chris Nyland. So uh, there's one player who's doing very well, exceedingly well, as the team starts very, very well. You represent Jonathan Drouin. 
what's the difference this year, Alan? If you can give us some insight in, in, into what's going on with Jonathan and the team, why this year has been such a, a, a great start for him and the team. Uh, that, that, I actually was uh, talking to Joe just the other day and we were kind of bannering back and forth about this very topic. I think the uh, one of the big differences uh, he he's playing with players that he's helping to make better, Got it. and and they're helping to make him better. It's just a great fit. So he's playing with Suzuki and Anderson. That line has been arguably uh, one of Montreal's best lines, um, both offensively and defensively. I was looking at the stats this morning. Um, 18% of the shots taken by Montreal when Drew is on the ice are converted to goals right now. Now, that's an incredible stat. I, I can't imagine it's going to stay like that throughout the entire season. We'd expect to see some regression at some point. But it's just been a, a great fit. And, and I think people underestimate what an intense competitor Jonathan is he's just an intense intense competitor and and playing on a team that is winning where Montreal is right now you know Jonathan's won at every level he's ever played at his Bantam team was the best Bantam team in Quebec his midget team Lacting Reliance won the Telus Cup uh, the best midget team in Canada uh, when he played in Halifax, won the Quebec League Championship and the Memorial Cup. He's literally won growing up at every level he's ever played at. And and now he is in an environment where um, all the eyes are not just on him. He's not expected to carry a team on his shoulders. Uh, he's, he's just expected... To, to do his job, and I think he's walking lighter. He's certainly smiling a lot more, and uh, he's thriving. And when he's in that mode, you know he's a uh, he's, he's a fantastic player. Um, let's bring it back to LA a little bit more. Um, we see you at games. Uh, we know that you have, uh, and it's a guy that we still have not had on the show. But we know that you have a, a pretty strong relationship with a former um, agent who's now working as the capologist for the Kings in Jeff Solomon. And Merrick, um, Alan reminded me the other night when I tweeted about a contract, about who really negotiates the contracts in L.A. Okay, so Alan, that, is that unusual that uh, are you dealing with capologists with all the other teams? Is Jeff an anomaly? Are you dealing more with GMs on other teams as opposed to um, Jeff, how does the process work nowadays since the salary cap is going to be flat for a while? Every team operates differently. And many times, um, you know, I've had GM say to me, uh, usually I let my assistant GM handle these deals. But given that you and I have known each other 20 years, I just thought I'll handle it myself. Other times you're dealing with the assistant GM Flash capologist who um, is is the designated person within the organization who negotiates contracts. So there's no blanket rule. Every team is different. Every team operates differently. 
Um, and, and a lot of it is also based on your own individual relationships sure. with the people who are, who are on the other side. Okay. So that's two softballs. Now there's going to be a fastball up and in. Um, <laughs> not everyone, not every agent uses social media as you do. Okay. Um, the infamous sword in the back of it during the playoffs was fantastic. Ellen, why go that route? Why be so public? Um, to criticize um, management when you think your clients are being wronged. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to refer at all specifically to sure. any one player or incident. That's fine. Uh, what I what I would say is this: uh, when when Twitter was just getting started, and no one knew what it was. Uh, some executives from Twitter came to Octagon and spoke to us, a bunch of Octagon agents, about uh, social media and this new company called Twitter and the where they thought it was going to go. And I was intrigued by it. And I think it was probably 2008 where I uh, created a Twitter account there was no app that went on your smartphone. It was only available on desktop. You could tweet using a code that they gave you um, uh, that you would send as a text message on your phone that would get posted. But there was no way to really read Twitter or read tweets or follow anybody's social media unless you were on a, on a desktop. That's how it all started. And uh, I started reading periodically updates on clients, uh, accomplishments. Uh, and I, I became someone who, who went from, this is kind of cool, to realizing the reach and the power and the... Um, utilitarian aspect of what Twitter was going to become. I, I really thought it was something that was going to become ubiquitous to everybody. And I was watching it continue to grow. And then, you know, there's that first app that you could download onto your phone, which took Twitter to another level. And then uh, notifications where you can get certain tweets sent to you instantaneously when they're, when they hit and, uh, slowly, but surely every reporter, uh, many players, uh, corporations, marketing groups, everyone started walking to this, uh, Twitter and then the advent of Instagram and, 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 and other platforms, Snapchat, uh, other platforms as well. Um, I just always wear my heart on my sleeve. And, and at times I can be very passionate about what I believe in. And when I thought about becoming an agent, I really thought long and hard about what kind of agent I wanted to be. And I, and when I started getting into the business and talking to players, 
hey, I would ask questions about, you know, what do you expect from your agent? Um, uh, what are you looking for? The one thing I came to realize very early on is that there were very few, if any, agents really willing to go back to their clients. And many, many agents, without putting the finger at anyone in particular, are compromised in their inherent conflict. And that is um, they have relationships with general managers, uh, relationships with owners, relationships with club presidents, and they value those relationships more than they value um, the relationship they have with their own client. It's just a fact. And, and I've seen it time and time and time again. People in the business are afraid to ruffle feathers because they're afraid if they do something or say something, uh, perhaps teams won't want to deal with them again in the future. And I, I went into the business saying to myself, I am never going to care about that. I don't want to be in the owner's box. I don't need to sit and hobnob with the general manager in the press box. I don't need to be seen with anybody. I am going to ferociously and fiercely represent my clients. I am going to protect their rights and advance their interests. That is my reason for being on this earth and for breathing air. That's all. And you referenced, you know, your your friends with a guy who's uh, the, the LA Kings capologist or assistant GM. Everyone who knows me knows. I've been in the business for 25 years. You have to create relationships sure. with people on the other side. But the relationship is a professional relationship and it doesn't matter who it is on the other side I don't care I really don't care I will only think about what's in my client's best interest and if it's a guy that I've known for 20 years who's on the other side of the table representing the team there is zero consideration to the quote unquote friendship that might exist in the instant situation, I will do anything and everything that I can within the bounds of ethics and the law to do anything to help my client, period. And that's my outlook in every situation. Alan, speaking of Jeff Solomon, uh, he, he's he, like you, he's been booked or, or close to being booked on the program a number of times, and we've long joked that there's something interesting about Sully, and that is all of the other executives that you see walking around an arena after a game downstairs, all of them, you know, they have their smartphones, like you mentioned, but they don't carry briefcases. Sully's always walking around with the briefcase. What's in that briefcase? <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. It's a great mystery. What? Well, next time I see him with a briefcase, I'll be sure to ask him what's in it. 
he won't tell us. We we keep asking. And that's I think that's why he's so reluctant to come on the program is he knows that once we hit the record button, he's not going to be able to get away. So we'll get to that later then, I guess, with him. At some point, he'll he'll come on the program. But take take fans inside you know, sort of the negotiations. Uh, fans always think at this point now, especially with social media, you know, back to that again, um, with all of, you know, the term is out there and the AAV is out there. And, the, you know, there are all these people that think they're capologists as fans and super fans. But what's it really like? Well, talk about the negotiations, especially for like entry level players, as an example, coming off of their deals and trying to negotiate without naming any specific players or any specific team. Just sort of what kind of insight can you tell people about that maybe they really aren't privy to? Well, the, the negotiations on a first-round pick, you've got a lot of uh, uh, precedent in recent history of, of where uh, guys are drafted and what they've signed for. And like you said, it's all public. So there's certainly a lot of preparation that goes into every negotiation. But the idea of the uh, cigar-chomping GM sitting uh, across the table from, uh, from a guy wearing a suit and tie with a briefcase as the agent, negotiating back and forth, uh, you know, yelling, screaming, banging down the phone kind of thing. That doesn't exist. Negotiations are, are academic. They're uh, heavily based on stats, draft position in the, in the case of entry-level players. Uh, performance uh, after being drafted, you know, a, a fourth round pick playing in the OHL who scores 60 goals. Uh, the argument is, yes, he may have been drafted in the fourth round, but he's clearly not regarded as a fourth rounder anymore and should be compensated somewhat in uh, commensurate with his, um, with his performance after being drafted. So there's, there's a lot of that. Some deals can come together very quickly and other deals can take months of back and forth. Um, and there's different pieces to the deal that you're negotiating at different times. Moving beyond entry level, you, you know, you could, uh, I've had some deals where, you know, you're talking about first the term. And, and you need to align with the team first on, you know, what the term is going to be. Is it three years? Is it, is it four years? Is it five years? Sometimes you're operating simultaneously off of three different concepts. And, and uh, take a player that I, I recently signed to a longer term deal. Uh, up until the week the contract got done, we were literally discussing a one-year deal, a three-year deal, four-year deal, and a five-year deal. All at different levels of compensation. And then once you focus in on the term, uh, then uh, the structure, which is critical uh, based on uh, where escrow and this year deferral, the 10% deferral hit, versus uh, the outer years of a five-year deal where escrow can go down as, as will be capped at 6%. So there's, there's, there's an advantage perhaps to placing more compensation into the outer years. So now you're 
your back-loading deals as opposed to front-loading deals, which is what many of us were doing for many years uh, up until now, and uh, then discussing whether you can uh, get any signing bonus in addition to a salary and when that signing bonus would be paid. Uh, and then at the end of the day, you finally come to uh, trade restrictions, whether it's a no trade, limited no trade, no movement clause. So there's all these different pieces and there's give and take on each piece and there's movement within each piece uh, to, to finally get to uh, the deal. And sometimes the time frame is uh, we've got to get a deal done within a week because of a looming arbitration date or looming July 1 uh, free agency. And sometimes you're, you're, you're literally negotiating over an entire year to get to, to a deal. And then you get to July 1 where, you know, in the past, uh, I've ended up uh, negotiating entire contracts within 30 minutes. Alan, um, so wondering your take on what happened with Lane and Dubois because these are situations where these players are off their they're in their bridge contracts. They they don't, as you've told me in the past, there's not much leverage, right? I mean, they really don't really have any options. Um, yet they demanded to be moved, or not to be, or, or their wish was to move from their current team. Just overall, like that particular deal, maybe you have a thought on, and just that the um, do you as representing these clients, is there opportunity? Is there a lot of leverage to create a situation where if a player's not happy in a market, you could move them? Well, I want to be very careful here. Um, Patrick Lane is represented by Octagon. Right. And I don't want to reference that situation at all. Sure. But I'll tell you uh, my own personal feeling. And, and if you ever want to see a GM's face for red, and smoke come out of his ears, have him listen to this portion of what I'm about to say. Okay. Uh, I, I strongly feel that irrespective of the CBA and needing to turn 25 years of age, if you come into the league at 18 or, or 27 years of age, you know, teams are very much into years of control over a player whether it's within the entry-level system or extending the entry-level system because of the slide, whether it's having the arbitration rights and being able to file, team can file on a player and force a player into a contract um, up until the accrued seasons bring the player to free agency. I'm of the opinion, and I've always been of the opinion, that player has the right at any time to say and again it has to be used judiciously and it can't be a blanket uh, I just like to go somewhere else for no reason at all but when the case has been made uh, confidentially and privately between a player, an agent and a uh, GM, an organization about uh, reasons why he wants to move either the fit isn't right the usage isn't right could be a whole host of different factors. You're not going to be able to, you shouldn't be able to force a player to stay in a certain city playing for a certain team if he doesn't want to be there. 
and and that is very that's a very controversial uh, take because the teams will say, well, the CBA has been negotiated between the league and the PA, and we've got our rights and we've got our leverage, and and we basically own the player right now, subject to what we have to pay him, you know, whether arbitrator says this is the number or so forth. But you don't have the right to come to us and say you want to go somewhere else. You don't have that right. You, we, we don't have to trade a player. We own the player until he has his rights to unrestricted free agency and until then he's under the team control. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. That's what the CBA says. And and can't deny that you have that right to keep the player, and nobody can force you to trade him. But that doesn't mean the player has to sign a contract with you, and it doesn't mean the player can't just decide. You know what? I'm a person of my principles here. I don't want to be here. I've asked you to move me. You've refused. I know there's good deals that have been offered to you, and you've refused. I'm not playing here anymore. That's a really um, aggressive stance to take. But players only have one career. And no matter what stage they're in within the system, they can make choices. They're not going to be forced into anything. Players, even with no leverage, have the ultimate leverage. I've heard so many times from people on the team side, no leverage. Oh yeah? You got the ultimate leverage. We have more leverage than than you can even imagine. How so, Alan? Player's not gonna play. You can't get any more leverage than that. You know, and and you can you can argue while you you're 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 carving out rights that don't exist for the player. Well, go take a look at my mission statement. I don't really care about anything other than what's in the best interest of the player, and I will fight for my dying breath to accomplish that for the player. Let's. Wrap up. To, first of all, thank you so much for for the in depth answers and for all of your time today. Uh, you know, obviously appreciate it, Alan. It's always fun talking to you, whether it's by the elevator between periods at Staples Center or you know, uh, text or phone or whatever. And certainly, uh, I think that the listeners have been hanging on every word and and, and trying to get some insight uh, from your you know vast experience around the league. And and that league sort of in general is where I want to go next. Concussions. One of your big talking points on Twitter or, or, or common talking points is about the league's position about concussions and head injuries and all of that stuff, not only the NHL, but also the NFL. And, and just wanted to uh, allow you an opportunity to sort of spend a few minutes to talk about what that means to you. You know, I, I represented a player for many years in the NHL, and uh, I had uh, always been uh, outspoken on player safety and as the concussion epidemic started spreading throughout the NHL, uh, it began to hit very close to home 
to me and, and become personal. And, uh, and I've told the story before, but a player who I represented for a number of years uh, called me one day and he was in a panic. He had gone to the markets, the markets two miles from his house. He goes to the market on a regular basis for many years. And on the way home from the market two miles away, he got lost and couldn't find his way back home. And he pulled his car over. He called me and he was very emotional. And he's like, I don't know where I am. And I, and I, I can't get home. And this is a player who had over 10 official confirmed concussions over the course of his career. And according to him, um, minor hockey through junior American league and NHL, probably another 10. And his short-term memory, um, other cognitive issues started to impact him uh, approximately three, four years after he retired. And 100% in, in speaking to the neurologist that he went to and, uh, and, and some of the professionals that he interacted with, that shared uh, comments with me, there's a great likelihood it was related to the accumulated blows to the head and concussions he received the course of his entire lifetime. And, and that to me, and, and that was one incident, but it's not an isolated incident, unfortunately. But you start looking at the league in a different way. And when it starts coming out uh, many years ago, how the league suppressed information and the dangers of accumulated blows to the head and subconcussive blows to the head uh, and concussions and the way in the past guys were sent back out to play feeling not right with pronounced concussion, post-concussion symptoms. And there was such disregard for their health and safety. You knew if a player tore a ligament in his knee or had a hip issue or a shoulder issue or a broken arm or a wrist, you knew that there would be a rehab period, whether surgery was needed or not, and then you're going to be okay to play. And those were injuries that you could see, hear, feel, and, and deal with. And yes, you could end up having knee issues into retirement, Lots of former players need knee replacements down the road at some point in time in their 50s, hip replacements. So often I'm talking to players who played 20, 25 years ago in the NHL, and they have 
you know, surgeries now uh, based on hip issues, knee issues, the most common shoulder. Uh, it's it's prevalent. But nobody ever told these guys, hey, you know, you may end up in your late 40s, early 50s with diminished cognitive function. No one ever told them that. And in fact, they were told the opposite. There is nothing out here that we know that based on concussions that will impact you down the road post-career. And certainly the NFL situation is well-documented. The NFL has come to publicly acknowledge the association between concussions and CTE, something that to this very day, Gary Bettman will still go before Congress under oath and deny. He'll go before a Canadian parliamentary hearing under oath and deny that there is any association between concussions, uh, traumatic brain injury, and diminished cognitive issues, neurological disorders like CTE later in life. And it's just not true. The, the, the scientific community is near unanimous. There have been reputable peer-reviewed studies done by the top people in the scientific space that say there is an association and to stand there now and to say, well, we need to keep looking at it, and the data we have is still nascent, and uh, we we really don't know a lot about this. Come on. Come on. It's not credible. And I think it makes Gary Bettman look terrible every time he says this. And I think it makes the NHL, it puts a a black mark on them every time he says this. And as someone representing players, but concerned about life after hockey, this is it. You know, I I say to players from the time they come into the league, it's not how much you make in your contract. It's how much you have left when you're done. And it's not what you do while you're playing in the league. It's the kind of life you set up for yourself and your family when you're done. If you played 15, 16 years in the NHL and you've had a wonderful career, and now you're in your late 40s, early 50s, and you're, you're, you're having issues living your life every day, you have a diminished quality of life. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? And why are people doing more on both sides to ensure as much as possible that these guys, especially the guys that built the game in the 50s and 60s that weren't well compensated, 
the heroes I worshipped when I was a kid. Are they fodder? What are we doing here? And and if there's one overriding issue that that consumes me on a daily basis, it's that. Well said. Uh, okay. <laughs> you uh, let's end the note. Let's end this conversation uh, on on a more positive note. Uh, that was that was rather. Uh, well, almost depressing to be quite honest with you. Uh, you know, you start to think about players and and guys that we know that have had issues, and start to think about even younger players coming into the league now and what they're going to leave the league like in in ten years from now or fifteen years from now. So, um, let's let's try to end on a positive note here today. And of course, again, we we really appreciate your time, Alan. Uh, I already I already played Thunder Road for you. I'm going to queue up uh, Mike Ness and Ballad of a Lonely Man featuring Springsteen to to close you out here today, and then. At the end of the program today, I'll, I'll even play Dropkick Murphys and Bruce Springsteen joining them as well for Rose Tattoo. But how about this? You are a great hype man as well. You could have been a pro wrestling manager. You you have that marketing flair about you. So let's stick specific to Los Angeles. Uh, Martin Furk, uh, Matt Luff, two players who were trying to break their way into the lineup. They were out injured. Now they're coming back. They're playing. You know, for Kings fans that don't know a lot about Martin Furk, don't know a lot about Matt Luff, give, give your best hype pitch why fans should be excited about seeing these two players playing minutes in Los Angeles this season. Well, I've, uh, I, I've represented Marty Frick since he was 15 years of age. And the first time I met him was in a hotel in Prague, uh, uh, with his, uh, with his father when he was, uh, he had probably just turned 15 at the time. And, uh, and Marty ended up playing, uh, Czech Extra League, which is the, the Czech NHL, the top pro league, at a very young age. He was 16 when he played his first uh, pro game. And, uh, of course, I helped bring him to Halifax in the Quebec Junior League. And, and then he was uh, drafted in the second round by uh, the Detroit Red Wings. Marty Frick has a weapon. He has an incredible shot. You saw it in the American League uh, skills competition. Uh, that is, I call it the shock that went around, was heard around the world. Uh, but people around him and on the teams he played on have always known about his weapon. And, and that shot, uh, if and when accurate, can score a lot of goals. And when he got his opportunity to play in L.A. last year, he, he had some chemistry with the players he played with. And using the one-timer, um, started scoring. And I think generated uh, uh, a lot of excitement in, in what he represents. I mean, off the ice, he couldn't find a nicer guy, a guy who's always smiling, always happy, always positive works his butt off as a gym rat and uh and some players it it the fit isn't right for whatever reason and and ends up in a place where the fit is just the the, the things that you have the attributes you have uh are are a a fit like a glove with what the team might be looking for and needing at a specific time. Uh, as for uh, Matt Luffer, it's two years now, going into the second year that we've been working together. 
working with Matt Luff has been an absolute joy. He is um, just a dream client in his responsiveness, his hunger to learn, uh, his dedication to the game, his approach. And uh, here's a guy, you know, these guys are my heroes. Never drafted, gets an invite to camp, comes in and earns a contract. Nothing has ever been handed to Matt Luck. And, and to see him playing in the NHL level and, and what he brings, you know, big body, physical, uh, great skater. He's the kind of guy that can score goals. He can shut down. There's a lot of different aspects and elements to his game that can be mined and, and, and make him a regular player at the NHL level who can, who can do a little bit of everything and also put some good numbers on the scoreboard too. He's the kind of guy that every team needs. And, and there's a cliche about a 200-foot player. Matt Luff, uh, I, I hate to use cliches, but he can be that 200-foot player that every team is looking for and every team needs. But when it comes to a guy off the ice, you know, I, I was I was thinking the other day in, in in going back and forth with him that it feels like the feel with Matt Luff is the guy that I've been working with for ten years. And it, it blows me away that I've only been working with him for going on to the second year now because of the level of uh, comfort and familiarity and the chemistry that we have uh, between you know with him and with the people working with me with him. Fantastic. I can't believe we just used up a whole hour. Uh, just great stuff, Alan. Covered a, a myriad of topics, and we probably still have 40 more questions to ask you. So we're going to have to rebook you again for next week, so clear your schedule, and uh, we'll, get, we'll get you back on. We can talk We can talk more uh, music. We can talk more hockey. I'll just say that uh, the, the one player uh, I'd want to uh, also mention as well uh, probably one of the top defense prospects in the Kings organization that I work with, Sean Dersey. And uh, I have a real good feeling we'll be seeing uh, Sean Dersey in an L.A. Kings uniform very soon as well. Well, you're absolutely right about that. And uh, I guess I'll have to connect with you before we put out the Kings prospect ranking so that you and I can argue about where he slots in among the top 10 defenseman within the organization that'll be a, a fun debate uh, he obviously uh bring, brings a tremendous amount from the offensive side of things and from all accounts has been working on the defensive side really rounding himself into a, a complete player very interested to see his development take off here with the new coach in ontario and john robleski and uh It'll, it'll be interesting to see how it all sort of comes together, but I do agree with you. Sean Dersey is a, is a threat. He's a weapon. He's a rising prospect in the Kings organization, and, and they were lucky to get him in that uh, trade a couple of years ago. Alan, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts and opinions and views and experience uh, with the listeners. And it's not the same at games. Uh, you know, we don't get a chance to see you uh, at, by the media elevators in between periods right now, but uh, we look forward to life returning to normal again and, and being able to chirp you between periods. Yes, uh, privilege being on with you guys and uh, look forward to life returning to normal and 
being able to bump into you guys on a uh, on a semi-regular basis. There you go. Alan Walsh, Agent of the Stars. We'll be back after the break and uh, talk more about that. Welcome back to the third period of Kings of the Podcast with DB and the Mayor. Woo, DB, third period, but man, coming off that second period there, Alan Walsh. I mean, that was that was a million times fantastic and amazing and absolutely incredible. Uh, insert any other word. Uh, how you feeling right now? I think that Spring Scene should write a song, "The Life and Times of Alan Walsh," because that was <laughs> that's that was what that just was, "The Life and Times of Alan Walsh." You, you know, asked, John, uh, you asked one question. You got a 20 minute answer. That was great. <laughs> but here's the thing, though. They were they were great. They were fantastic answers, too. It wasn't yes. just like, you know, run of the mill stuff. It wasn't like he was reading the phone book, as they would say. Now, that's a really old reference, by the way. These these kids listening today have no idea what a phone no book idea. is. But <laughs> you know, uh, man, every time every time I think I'm young, then then something happens. And right. I go, wait, you remind you know, me. Well, I just reminded that I'm not 25 because right. I, there seems to be a real, uh, you know, a line in the sand at 25. If you're 25 yeah. and under, you seem to be from a different planet. And if you're 25 and older, I don't know. Life is just different. Hey, um, let's wrap up the show today very quickly. It's been a, a long program. And again, thank you to Alan Walsh. A lot of uh, starts and stops of getting him booked on the show. He's a busy man, but we do appreciate his diligence to want to come on the program and, and share some time with us. So thank you to to Alan Walsh. Uh, thank you to Bruce Springsteen for all the inspiration as well. Uh, DB, let's wrap up today with a quick look ahead to what's coming up for the LA Kings. They're um, going to be playing the San Jose Sharks, who they have not seen this year. So uh, I, I think both of us have a couple of bullet points to share. I would say um, in talking with some of the Sharks writers, these are the crib notes. Uh, Dubnik has been playing well. I guess that's a good thing for them because if you look at the goal differential, they are the second or they're tied for the worst in the division. I know it's early, but uh, minus nine in the goal differential column, which is um, tied with the Ducks for the worst in the in the West. Uh, also, uh, from, from what we're hearing, Carlson, Hurdle, and Vlasic are all really struggling, and those are three guys that they need if they're going to make any sort of noise in the West. Uh, Eric Carlson, of course, signed to that monster contract, and, and, and Hurdle just never seems to uh, have lived up to his expectations, at least in my mind. And then the power play is miserable. So you mentioned earlier the Kings five on five play. The Sharks power play is miserable. So perhaps the PK can get healthy. And then they also um, did have a player recently fined $5,000 for for uh, spearing. So they, ha they have that too. So the NHL um, player safety committee has paid a visit to Minnesota Wild related to the LA Kings. And then has also paid a visit to the San Jose Sharks, Dennis. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the Ducks got three points against the Sharks in their set. Um, that tells you 
um, that these are ultimately winnable games. They haven't been good five on five. If you look at their stats, I mean, they, they really haven't scored much. Logan Couture and Payne have the most points, uh, eight points each in 10 games. Couture has five goals, but the team throws. And you mentioned, you know, Carlson struggling, but him and you're going to see a lot of Brent Burns and Eric Carlson in this series. Brent Burns is playing his usual 27-32 a night. He's averaging, and just behind him is Carlson at 26-32. So whether they're playing well or not, John, um, you're going to see a lot of those that those two defensemen. And these are ultimately winnable games. There's no excuse not to win both, to be honest with the way this team's playing. I've watched some of their games. It's a track meet every night. They aren't good defensively. Um, there's opportunity here. If teams can play better five on five and get in, you know, get in, draw some penalties and get some power play time. But this is I think this is the defining moment. If you lose two against these teams and just, you know, wave the white flag and, you know, just start looking at development and how you can develop the kids a little bit better, because these are two ultimately winnable games. You're playing at home. You're just coming off a tough series where you could see there's a gap between LA and Vegas right now. And that's not a criticism, just a fact right now. There's no gap between the Sharks and Kings right now. They should win these games. All right. So there you go. That is our quick down and dirty breakdown. We'll talk more about it in a future episode, Dennis. But uh, thanks for joining us here for what was an outstanding episode. We'll have to do this again soon. Absolutely, Jay. Let's do it. All right, everybody. Have a great week. The pictures tell the story. This life had many shades. I'd wake up every morning and before I'd start each day, I'd take a drag from last night's cigarette that smoldered in its tray. Down a little something, then be on my way. I travel far and wide and laid this head in many ports. I was guided by a compass, I saw beauty to the north. I drew the tales of many lives, or faces of my own. I had these memories all around me, so I wouldn't be alone. Some may be from showing up, others are from growing up. Sometimes I was so messed up and didn't have a clue. I ain't winning, no, I 